Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find links to subscribe to the show on iTunes using an RSS reader. You can also follow the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and all those links are at thejazzsession.com. The 100 by 300 membership campaign is rapidly drawing to a close. The goal is to get 100 paying members by the 300th show. You can be a member for as little as $10 a month. You can become an official sponsor of the show, like Matt Rock, for $50 a month or $500 a year. But for as little as 10 bucks a month, you can become a member of the Jazz Session and help keep the show going. If I have 100 members by show number 300 on August 11th, there will be a 301. And if I don't, there won't. It's just that simple. Thanks to the following people who have joined recently, Mark Shalansky, Jeff Schwartz, uh, my good friend James Shipp, who has been on the show, you'll find him in the archives, and Fred Siebert, who was on the ground floor of WKCR back in the day and worked with Anthony Braxton and a host, Cecil Taylor, a host of people uh, back in the, uh, the exciting origin days of WKCR. So thanks very much to Fred for supporting the show. It means a lot. Thanks also to everybody who has been uh, Facebooking and tweeting about the show. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, I can only reach as far as I can reach. So when you guys add your voices too, it just means that many more people get to hear about the jazz session. And uh, I am I'm truly grateful that you've been doing that. Thank you very much. My guest today is the saxophonist Matana Roberts. She is, I think, one of the real leading lights of her generation of musicians. She's put out a couple albums recently, a live record and also an album called Coin Coin. That is uh, truly one of the amazing things I've heard recently. And I hope you'll agree as we listen to a track from that album and then hear a conversation with Matana Roberts. <laughs> Thank you. 
My guest is the composer and saxophonist Matana Roberts, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for asking. So uh, you've released a couple things recently. Uh, the one that just absolutely floored me is the, um, I guess, the first chapter of the Coin Coin, Coin Saga. Coin. Uh, and it's it's incredible. It's devastating and it's beautiful and it's kind of everything you would hope that kind of a project would be. Huh. And rather than people just hear me say adjectives over and over, uh-huh. uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what that album is and, and give folks an idea about its its genesis. Which is that oh that album is so hard to explain. That yeah. project is so hard <laughs> to explain. It's getting harder and harder um, as it gets larger. You mean yes. It keeps growing into all these different things, which has been really interesting. But I I need to remember to rope it so that it doesn't completely explode. But that Coin Coin record is part of a 12-segment project that I've been working on since about 2006 um, that originally was spawned off of trying to deal with some information I had on my own ancestral history that I was very curious about and didn't have time to have like a separate genealogy hobby practice and then a music practice so I needed to figure out a way to combine them Um, and then I also had a real interest in trying to come up with my own system of notation and I I just needed something to umbrella all these things I was interested in always been interested in theater and theatrical staging and all these things and I was dealing with some of those things in some of my other work and it doesn't it wasn't quite fitting so I was trying to create a project that I could pretty much dump all these other things that I'm into under one umbrella and so that record is part of what hopefully will be 12 (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I just said that but yeah Hopefully we'll be 12. Yeah, it's always good to set your sights low yeah, on these projects. Right? Yeah, let's just set, do 12 Set records. them low, yeah, Why yeah, not? yeah. I mean, originally it was 10 chapters, and then I added. And each, so each record is about, a, it's based around a particular historical nut that I'm dealing with. Um, some of them having to do with ancestral stories, some of them not. Some of them just having to do with certain parts of African-American history that I'm interested in digging into more. Um and I put, I put two solo pieces in the project now, so that's why they're 12 and not 10. So it's not so hard. 12 ensemble, that would be kind of hard. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading your writing about this project since long before I had heard any of the music. And mm-hmm. um, I, I've read that you, to some degree, have, I don't know if pulled back from is the right phrase, but but decided not to solely pursue the idea of family history because you said you were unsure that these people would necessarily want the story told the way you're Yeah, I know where you it. saw that too. And that I was trying to get that to straighten that out a little bit because it, it never was... The project was always all these different things and it was never just about the ancestry. Mm-hmm. And that's been, that's been really hard to... to uh, how to expound to people that it was never just about that. Um, but that, yes, I mean, to be honest with you, you know, my mother died last summer. And so since that time, um, a lot of these stories that I'm dealing with are stories that she told me. And pulling away a little bit, sure, I'm doing probably for that reason because they're very precious to me. Um, I'm also dealing with people who I'm not sure would have wanted to be spoken about in the way I'm speaking about them, uh, and I'll I'll never know, you know. So, 
I'm just trying to, um, what's most important to me in the entire project is dealing with the idea of universals and universality and how even though I'm dealing with this particular history, it's a history that's repeated itself in many different ways across many different cultures, you know, just these same little hallmarks of the human condition. That's what I'm really interested in. Um, and so if I'm pulling, I think when I said to that other um, great interviewer, I can't remember who asked me questions about that, um, pulling back, it's for that reason of just trying to present those universalities, protect myself a little bit. Um, I just keep expanding on the work. talk about some of the archetypes that you're trying to speak about? Some of the archetypes. So uh, a theme that runs throughout the entire thing, really. I mean, if to go back to the ancestry thing, the, th the theme, the string that pulls it all together is this strong female archetype. It's through the entire thing, even if I didn't want it to be, I couldn't lie and say it wasn't there. Because the ancestry stories that are part of the work are stories that are passed through the women. It's been really interesting to find the same stories passed through the men in my family in a very different way than it was passed through with the women, and I find that very interesting. Um, so th there's that, and you know, the project is named Coin Coin for a lot of different reasons, but the, you know, one of the reasons has to do with the history of this one woman that I'm related to by marriage only. She was one of the first strong female archetypes I was exposed to as a kid. After her came Harriet Tubman. After her came Sojourner Truth, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, Betty Shabazz, Coretta Scott King, Angela Davis. All these people kind of came through that through line for me. So that's an archetype. Uh, Were you exposed to those people because your mother placed importance on telling you those stories, or where did that come from? My parents, I mean, my parents, my parents were, um, were heavily involved with kind of the black revolutionary art scene that was going on in Chicago in the late 70s, uh, mid-70s, late 70s, and I was born into that. So a lot of, I feel like this work has a lot to do with what I was born into, and kind of just being raised in a family where even though a very splintered family, but still raised with this knowledge of a history and being taught to pay attention to that history. 
um, that was a very important part of my upbringing. And being explicitly taught that. It wasn't just the fact of your environment, but it was actually no, some, it was a conscious v- thing that it your was, parents Yeah, decided. it was very conscious. I mean, my, my father is a political scientist, and my mother was doing all sorts of things on the behalf of black people. And, you know, we always had books and records and books and records. And there was also kind of a... There were some things not spoken that you just pick up from being in a certain environment of black people born during a certain time period. So there's that too. Did you ever want to move away from that to say this is too much, it's too heavy, too involved? Yeah, and I have. I have done it in many different ways because there's certain segments of that community that are not completely accepting of other parts of me. And I've had a lot of issues with that over the years. And so I've found other ways and other environments and other communities. But it's still, that history is such a core of who I am and just always being taught that, you know, I'm standing on the backs of so many people that never got a chance to express themselves. I think about that a lot. I feel very privileged, you know, um, to be able to do what I'm doing because of that. And I feel like I'm supposed to speak on that, though sometimes it it is uncomfortable because, you know, some people don't want to hear about those things anymore. Like we're done with that, or we're through. Right. You know? Our lovely post-racial sure, society. Yeah. That we're in that, right? <laughs> it's great. You know, <laughs> it's a fairyland. My president looks like my uncle. We're cool. <laughs> Everything's let's, fine. You know, let's move <laughs> on. So. So, yeah, I go back and forth about that. I've never heard anyone say that. My president looks like my uncle. Yeah, That's man. brilliant. It's really something. <laughs> That's great. There's still periods. I mean, now I'm kind of used to it. I mean, I don't own a TV TV, but, like, I when I see it. him. I remember when I first started seeing him, on the, and it's just like, that's a joke. Who is that? This is a Saturday Night Live skit. What is going on? And then I remember, you know, this man's middle name is Hussein. There's no way, you know, and even my gr- my Mississippi grandmother who's still living will say, you know, there's no way they're going to put a black man in that White House. And look, you know, so it's interesting. And I feel like it it means it is a culmination of years of so many people across so many different cultures fighting for human rights and human equality in a certain way. It wasn't just about um, black people coming together, but it was about lots of different Americans coming together so that it was possible. So many people had to die for that to happen, but that's what happened. And that's really interesting to me. Obviously, just to listen to you talk, you never grew up with the idea that there was some inherent separation necessary between your artistic side and the 
political or social commentary side, it sounds like. Well, Either that or you've arrived at this place after you Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's. I was not encouraged to be an artist. I was in, I was definitely not encouraged to be a musician. I was encouraged to appreciate art and to remember that it has a place and that I should support it. But I but it was never something I think some I think in some ways psychologically my trying to pay attention to this history has a lot to do with trying to validate maybe to those communities that I came out of how important it is to be an artist and what an artist can do and see what a musician can do and see um, through their work that they couldn't do being a lawyer or a teacher or a doctor. Um, But I grew up in an environment where I was told I could do anything I wanted to do and should never... You know, my father... We don't get along so well, but I, I do give him credit that... He always told me I was going to grow up to be something great. I heard that every day. You know, so it's like, okay, that's... I don't think I answered your question, though. It's a nice answer, though. Okay. <laughs> uh, I've, I've also read the description of the process that created the, the Coin Coin record as a, a sort of quilting, which is both a metaphor but also reaches back into real actual history work. The word quilting is not metaphorical, mm-hmm. but an actual activity that people engaged in. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about both those sides? Well, I, I was talking to my Mississippi grandmother, and she's got these great stories. And they're so she's just so matter-of-fact about it. Like, I remember one day asking her, so, you know, what kind of music did you all listen to? And she said, oh, you know, we had a phonograph. You know, this is this is a sharecropping family of 12 in Canton, Mississippi. It's like, oh, you had a phonograph. It's like, what'd you listen to? And she just dropped it, and it almost floored me. She said, oh, yeah, we just listened to a lot of Bessie Smith. And for me as a musician, I got so excited about that. And she had she did not understand at all why I was so excited about that. I was like, you had Bessie Smith records. Like, that is so amazing. <laughs> she, didn't under, she still doesn't understand that. But as a musician, I was so excited about it. This is someone who could have seen Bessie Smith, you know, at tent revivals and these sorts of things. I've never asked her that question. She'll probably floor me with an answer for that. But she talked about quilting. And she talked about how her mother and father used to quilt together. And one day, um, a phone conversation I had with her, she explained to me the process. And I realized that what she was describing was very much how I was putting music together at the time or trying to put music together. And it seemed to be the only way that it worked was like these little pieces and snippets you find the the common entryway of where they can come together and you put them together and then you end up with this beautiful plethora of sound. And so that's where the quilting idea came from. And so is that the result of composing musical fragments that you think are complete in themselves and don't need to be extended into complete pieces in and of themselves in that fragment? Is that how, I guess, how do you come up with the, the constituent pieces that you're then going to quilt Yeah, I mean, some of it, I'll be honest, some of it came out of little snippets that were really frustrating sure, and really irritating. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't, no matter how much I edited them or tried to expand on them, they would go nowhere. And I just, I couldn't. And then one day, I think, like I'd written this little snippet. And then a month later, I wrote this other snippet, was frustrated with them both, and then realized that one was actually a continuation of the other. And that's just how my brain works and I should be cool with that <laughs> and like just let that happen 
Um, but sometimes it's for the purpose of putting those pieces together to force them to open up. And sometimes that has worked and sometimes it doesn't work. You force them to open up by juxtaposing them against one another to see what the, the kind of tensions mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the way and they inform them. hearing them and hearing them over and over again through performance mm. and understanding how they fit or how they don't. Luckily, I've played a lot of that music with some really gracious musicians who have been willing to take that from me. Which I appreciate. Yeah, I know that you've performed live uh, uh, five or six chapters. Is that yeah? Is that right? Yeah, okay. five and a half. Five and a half. Okay. Yeah. And do you find as you write the additional chapters, do, do you go back to the the earlier chapters to revise or to tie them together in different ways? Or? Uh, what I've been trying to do, what I've always been trying to do with all the scores, is to make sure there's a three way with all of them, where the system that exists in one score also exists in the next one. So that also, I think as a composer, it's important to do that for the people you play the music with, mm. that there's some sense of consistency. And then it kind of makes it easier to pull together a new chapter and then pull in a group of musicians who maybe played multiple chapters but never this one before. And it just makes it easier to work through they feel like it's a language they know how yeah, to speak at this i'm trying yeah and it's and i'm still trying to codify that language but just having these common hallmarks that they're used to seeing makes it easier uh remembering that this show goes to a, a general but very intelligent and charming audience mm-hmm. um can you talk a little bit about that system the system that you're creating to to notify no, well, uh, notate there, this there are a lot of different things that i use so there's a lot of graphic notation, a lot of shapes, and um, and shapes that are not random, shapes that are chosen for very specific reasons. Like I was when I first started the first score, I was looking very much into the symbology of of shapes, particularly in how they identify cultures. So some of the first symbols actually come from a lot of Native American storytelling. There's that. And so I have my grandma, my grandfather's grandmother was the founder of one of the first black Choctaw uh, Native American communities in Louisiana. So there's that. It's kind of dealing with that. Um, so I, can you give a concrete example of what one so of those like symbols a, might be? What so a, like there's circles. Okay. Like I use a lot of circles uh, because a circle is, a, to me, is a Native American expression of a circle of life. It's also an African expression. You've seen, you see that spoken about, but I'm particularly dealing with, with that. Um, and since that doesn't inherently mean something mm-hmm. in musical language, then mm-hmm. how do you translate that into something you want the performer to do? Oh, with different things. So a lot of times the circles have different um, identifiers that go with them. Sometimes they have musical identifiers. Like uh, since a lot of the information, I'm historical information I'm dealing with is database, we're talking about numbers. Well, numbers can easily be uh, turned into sounds sure. if you're dealing with musicians. So I mess around with that a lot. Okay. Um, I mess around with textures of things that I draw. Um, I don't know how to quite explain this. No one's ever asked me this question before. (laughs) Um, You know, there's certain ways in which you can draw a line without showing notes. Sure. That musicians still understand just by con- dealing with contour. Whether the pitches are generally going up or going down, mm-hmm. louder or softer. How, or you know, and I'm also messing around with how improvisers approach symbols, which is, can be very different. And it doesn't sure. have to be jazz improvisers, but just 
people that have some idea of creating sound from something they see that's visual. So a circle that is empty would be approached very differently than a circle that is filled in. To me, as an improviser, I would see a circle that is empty and I would say, oh, I'm going to play with a lot of space. I'd see a circle that's filled in and I'd say, oh, I'm going to play with a lot of density. But it, it, it's dependent upon the instrument and it's dependent sure. also upon the personality of the musician. And how do you balance the freedom that's implied in that? with the musical vision you have for the pieces? I always, that's why there's still some Western notation in the pieces. Because to me, I like freedom very much, and I think it's very important. But I really like, I've always liked um, little constructs. I like having little barriers and things to consider. It makes it a lot more fun. So to me, the Western notation in a lot of those scores has a lot to do with that. And as... uh, for, for example, just keeping the circle, because mm-hmm. I think people can understand what a circle is fairly easily. Mm-hmm. So as people were to, uh, musicians were to move from chapter to chapter, would they see the same kind of circle with roughly the same kind of meaning in yes. chapter to chapter? Okay. Yeah, there's certain things that happen chapter to chapter. Those circles are always there pretty much. Um, the The way in which I use some of the data, there's a lot of... Um, I use a lot of different years throughout the scores. I think the earliest year is 1685 because that's how far I've gone back in some uh, ancestral history stuff and I turn those things into numbers into hallmarks Um, yeah there are a lot of different little things there are always group sing-alongs and all the most of the quinquan pieces on purpose Um, yeah and what is the difference for you between someone seeing, for example, a visual circle colored in that means density mm-hmm. and just seeing a series of like hashed marked bars that say play densely here? I feel like uh, too much instruction in that way traps mm-hmm. the player. I don't know. I have a learning disorder. So for me also the shapes and the things that are drawn and pictures and things gives more room for the personal voice rather than being really restrictive. I could do slash marks and write that. That's just not fun. (laughs) I wouldn't want to look at, like I'm trying to also make things that musicians enjoy looking at. Sure. Because they're, it's still, they're involved in labor. They're, you know. Right. So why not make it a good time? also incorporated uh, texts 
which sound both like some things that you've originally written and texts that you've taken from other primary sources, mm-hmm. right? Can you talk about how you've... Um, well, in the first record, all the texts, the texts where I imagine myself being the slave woman is I wrote all of that and I've tweaked it and changed it over the past five years. There are certain things that didn't work that work better. Um, and then there have been, there's... On the first record, there's a poem by Oscar Brown Jr. Mm-hmm. That, you know, originally <clears throat> I wanted to just write my own auction because I wanted to have an auction in the piece. I was like, I, how can I talk about this history without having that there? I want to have that. Um, and I started researching and I stumbled upon his poem. I was like, well, yeah. you know, <laughs> I can't do any better than this. This is really something. And it also. I mean, my mother is a big fan of the Oscar Brown Jr. family in Chicago. You know, Maggie Brown is a great singer. Mm-hmm. My mother would go out and see her sing, and we would always hear about them. And the fact that it's that Chicago blood, I just decided, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, and there, and in some of the coin coin pieces, there are, are common folk melodies that are used for jump off parts of improvisation, especially on the first chapter more than any of the other chapters. And all of the group sing-alongs are always some sort of Americana form. Um, Singing auctions is really interesting. It's really amazing how song can sell. That is, uh, yeah, that, and, and for me, the auction in that piece really, 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 really is, and I've said this a zillion times in the last week to people, it's a point of celebration for me because that auction just represents a strength and a power and um, privilege that I have now to do what I'm doing if that little girl hadn't been auctioned off like that. Uh, who knows where I'd be, you know? Um, so, I, yeah. And even on the course of this, I've only heard this first chapter, mm-hmm. uh, but even on the in the course of this first chapter, that concept of auction and the purchasing power is kind of turned back in on itself when uh, then the person who was sold begins to purchase back the family, that yeah, kind of whole yeah. idea. Of which the- was a common, which was a really mm-hmm. common practice. I mean, deal, digging into... American slave history is so interesting because from state to state it was very different. Louisiana is very interesting to me because because that state got passed around so many times, so many things were happening that were completely under the radar that no one knew anything about. Um, And the color line was so confusing there that people were able to get away with things um, that they wouldn't have been able to in other states. And so buying back family was common. Even if you didn't treat them like family, they're still family. Sure. Even in New York, Mm -hmm. but certainly in the other places I've lived in the United States, my experience has been that when I go to see jazz shows, I'm mostly in rooms full of white people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I wonder, first of all, is that a common experience that we share here in the States? And if so, uh, whether that affects the performance of this or whether you think it, it adds or takes away anything from the experience of playing this line? I don't know. It makes me nervous sometimes because this piece in particular, this is a this record in particular, and every time I performed that particular chapter, no, it's happened in other chapters where people come up to me in tears, and that got that is actually really exciting. It's like okay, the music really got them. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd really like to be able to do. Um, but I've done the same segments for people in my own family, and they're just like, oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. 
and you know that gives you kind of gives you perspective and you're like right okay Okay, you know it's uh and and sometimes i feel maybe the farther away you are from the history maybe you feel it more than the person who's so close right up in it they just don't even think about it anymore right i mean my people that come to my shows for the type of music i play and this has always been i think it's always been this way for black experimental musicians it's you know, I don't see very many people of color at my shows. I see, I make fun of them, but I see the modern like ethno hipster at my show, and I love them because they're my friends too. You know, right. buying records, they buy records, they go to shows. Um, people, there's a certain generation of black folk that only like to listen to a certain kind of jazz, and I've had this discussion with other black musicians in New York who'll say, well, you know. One guy said to me, he said, well, you know, it's, it's tough being black in America. And the last thing you want to listen to is some music that makes you think too much. You know, you want to listen to something that calms you and soothes you. And it's like, well, experimental musicians do that, too. But you, you need to dig in and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's certain places I go where I always, you know, I love going to Philly. Every time I go to Philly, it's like an audience of my father. There are like 10, 12 black gentlemen that always come out. And they're kind of the old school dudes that will come out and cheer you on. It's things, you know, that's very Chicago to me. Um, and in New York, it's, it's, so, it's so hard to get people out. I, I just don't, I don't even notice really. It's really hard to get people out. A bitter man, get a man, bitter man. A bitter man, get a man, bitter man. A bitter man, get a man, bitter man. Yes. A bitter man, get a man, bitter man. The sun is hot and plenty bright. We're going to get down to business and get on tonight. Auctioning slaves is real high art. Bring that young gal, Roy, she's good for a start. Bitter man, get a man, bitter man. A bitter man, get a man, bitter man. A bitter man, get a man, bitter man. A bitter man, get a man. Now here's a real goodbye, only about 15. It sounds like Chicago looms pretty large in, in who you are and who you've become in, sounds like, mostly positive ways. I don't know if there are others. But. Yeah, I mean, there, I don't, I'm not as attached to Chicago as I used to be. And I don't, I really, to be honest with you, I'm not sure how I fit with that city that much anymore because I haven't lived there in so long. And, you know... I mean, the summer was, it was back-to-back funerals with my mom and Fred Anderson's. And that, for me, was like, okay, when I go back to Chicago, it's a very different Chicago for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what does it mean? I'm not sure. But, you know, I was born in Cook County Hospital. And that, my parents are both really hardcore Chicago people. Um, And there's a certain thing about a certain generation of Chicago people it's, there's this thing they have. I don't know what it is, but every time... I was just out in California speaking uh, to Wadada Leo Smith's class, right? 
he's still got that thing. It's like this great migration, you know, all these people that came from all these other places and ended up in Chicago or St. Louis. And it's just a certain swagger they have, a certain way they talk, a certain way they move, that to me is very Chicago and a really, a way I romanticize a lot in my head. If you got a mind, bitter man, get a man, bitter man, a bitter man, get a man, bitter man. Bit a man, get a man, bit a man. Yes, a bit a man, get a man, bit a man. Three fifties a bit, I'm looking for four. At four hundred dollars, she's a bargain show. Four is the bid, four fifty five. Five hundred dollars, now look alive. Bit a man, get a man, bit a man. Bit a man, get a man, bit a man. Bit a man, get a man, bit a man. Bit a man, get a man, bit a man. Don't you mind them tears? That's one of her tricks. So, since I've made my comment about it being all white people at shows, now mm-hmm. I can make my other comment, which is my other experience is that it's predominantly men at the jazz shows I go to. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, not just the ones I go to. I don't seek out jazz shows that have predominantly men in the audience. It's predominantly men in the jazz audience, it seems like, these days uh, and and for years. And uh-huh. this is music that certainly speaks very clearly and powerfully about... Thank you very much. You're welcome. About um, what it is like and what it has been like to be a woman, and particularly a woman of color in this country. And uh-huh. so I wonder about that, too, the idea of performing that in those circumstances, if those dovetail with your experience. Yeah, if they dovetail with my experience. Wait, ask in the question words, again. In other words, it's quite possible that tons of women come out to see you, and I've only seen you live a couple times, so I can't really comment on your audiences. So if th- that is the case, that would make my question meaningless. But if it's not the case, and you're usually performing in front of men, then I also wonder kind of about yeah, that Yeah, I guess I never really it. thought about that before. Yeah, I guess I am most of the time performing in front of men. Though there are women... I guess I've never really, I guess I've paid more attention to the color line than I have the gender line in that respect. And and also have kind of given up on <clears throat> trying to worry too much about the gender thing. Trying to, you know, because all female jazz musicians go through this thing where you're trying really hard to be accepted within this very male community and 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 I say to people, you know, negativity aside, I've been brothered and fathered through this music and sistered, but mostly brothered and fathered. And I always need to remember that when there's like the jackass like experience that happens for everyone, um, and and knows no generational boundaries. That it really doesn't. It's it's. I don't know sad, what that's about, but, but it's yeah. true. It's so true, and it's like what. Like, you expect a certain... One of the things I always appreciate about Fred Anderson is that there was never... He just saw nothing but the saxophone. You know what I'm saying? And I've dealt with other people where, no, they see all these other things that have nothing to do with the saxophone. Um, And I've been supported by a lot of male musicians. But in the way that some male fans or male audience people approach me, that is where things get can get a little difficult and uncomfortable. 
I feel like women musicians just get approached in a completely different way that has nothing to do with music. It's just this societal hmm. thing. And, I, and that's, that's something that really bothers me at the moment, trying to deal with that. Can you say a few more words about Fred Anderson? I know he was someone you spent a lot of time with. Oh, man. Fred. Like, Fred. I love Fred Anderson. I miss Fred Anderson. You know, he was a man of very few words, but when he would speak, he'd always have something that just, it's like a bomb. Just Like, there was so much wisdom in the things that he would say. He spent a lot of time with me talking about the saxophone. Like, I would go to the Velvet Lounge, I would show up early, we would sit at the bar before things opened, and he he was a huge Charlie Parker fan. Can I interrupt you for one second? Mm-hmm. I don't want to assume that anyone listening to us actually knows who Fred Anderson was. Oh, yes. So, uh, okay, Fred one Anderson. One of us can say a few words, yeah. Great tenor saxophone player. One of the greatest tenor saxophone players of all time. Chicago uh, musician, very dedicated to Chicago. Uh, one of the first members of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. He had a club called the Velvet Lounge. And in that club, he allowed a lot of young musicians to come in and ply their craft. Oftentimes, it would just, I mean, he plucked me out of a jam session. He had a jam session there, and he pulled me aside and said, you know, I want to give you a gig. And no one had ever given me a gig before. You know, I said, well, Fred, what, you know, what are you supposed to do? You do anything you want to do, but I'm going to give you a gift. You know, it's just so, he's so important. And a lot of the people that went through the Velvet Lounge are people who are still playing today, like Nicole Mitchell and Chad Taylor and Jeff Parker, Josh Abrams, um, Corey Wilkes, uh, even uh, Maurice Brown. I remember Maurice. I remember him at like 14 coming through the Velvet and blowing everybody out of the water. It's like, who is that kid? <laughs> Like, what is he doing up there, you know? Just looked like he barely got out of fifth grade. (laughs) Blowing down the wall. It was really something. David Boykins, all these people. And so, I'm sorry, you were saying uh, that Fred was a big fan of Charlie Parker. Yeah, he was a big fan of Charlie Parker, and he would talk to me a lot about my sound. We had really good discussions about my sound, and I worked really hard on my sound because of Fred. Um, And he presented me with another option because at the time I was going to the Velvet Lounge I was also just in college and I was having a really difficult time at the college I was at being told that I needed to play a certain way in order to be expressive and Fred was one of those people who was like no you know you need to play like you but you need to understand this tradition in this way in a way that makes sense to you he's an important figure for me
a lot of people use the phrase work on their sound, which I think to non-musicians has a bit of a mystical hmm. sound to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something you do on a mountaintop that no one can possibly understand. <laughs> uh, so unless that is true and an accurate description of how you did it, can you talk a little bit about what that means to work on your sound? It just means to really... To be willing to take the slow road in terms of dealing with your instrument. If working on my sound meant hours and hours and hours sitting in a room by myself playing like the same six or seven or eight notes, you know, and just really working on centering those notes so that you have control. Like it's uh, like, I think sound is way more important than this idea of vocabulary that some jazz musicians talk about, I think. And sound, all the, Chicago is important to me in that all the musicians that have come out of there all have this personal sound where the moment you hear them, you're like, oh, yeah, I know who that is, you know. And there are other non-Chicago musicians you can hear that too, and you're like, oh, yeah, I know who that is. And the only way those people got to that point is by this singular focus on note by note, um, being able to identify all the contours and shapes that you could make with one note is pretty amazing and it's something I still battle with Um, but I feel that I am at a point where I have I do have my sound and that's a nice feeling to be able to say that What part of the thing that always sounds mystical to me about that is uh, the question of were you working on your sound with a destination in mind or did you just one day hear something and say, ah, that's me, and then you knew this is what I'll work on and strengthen and build on? Like, how did you know what the sound was that you – how do you know when you get there? I guess that's it's a kind good, of a I mean, that's a good question. question. I think that – I think – that's I think that's where this idea of tradition really comes in because that is where you know where you're going because mm-hmm. you're inspired by other players whose sounds you hear and you go okay I'm gonna you know I was gonna switch to tenor and I didn't switch to tenor because I heard Cannonball Adderley's solo on some record he did with Bill Evans and I was like and I don't want to sound like Cannonball but you can hear like this very personal thing right that you still hear and it's uh Every time you, th- you think of Cannonball, it's like you want a glass of champagne and like a, like it's so, <laughs> you know, I don't want to sound like that. But again, that's very Cannonball. You're like, everything's going to be all right because Cannonball sounds great. And he's telling you everything's going to be all right. Um, I don't know. I, that's a good question. I just feel like you come to a certain point where you realize that you've built up the strength necessary to communicate 
your sound. Um, and you listen to yourself enough and battle and get frustrated with yourself enough to realize that no matter how much you might try to sound like your heroes and it's not happening, it's because that's your own sound poking through. And that's, I guess that's what I mean mm -hmm. for me. Like I, I went through a period I tried to sound like a bunch of different people. It never worked out well at all. When you say you were going to switch to tenor but didn't, was that because you didn't think you'd be able to find your sound on the alto until you heard this example of someone yeah, who had? Yeah, exactly. And you thought, oh, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, the, you know, the tenor has such a heavy weight on the, in the jazz canon, and it was like, well, maybe, you know, these things that I'm hearing in my head, like as a saxophone player, after a certain point, you start to hear a sound in your head that you want to mimic. Do you play saxophone, by the way? I did. Okay, so you, okay. yeah, so you know, so like you start to, you're like, oh, and you put the horn in your mouth, and you know what a good saxophone sound sounds like, and so you're trying to recreate that. Um, but it's still, it, it wasn't working for me on alto, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I think the sound I'm hearing is this, you know, this deep sound with this deep bottom, and I just don't think you can do that on alto. And then you hear Cannonball doing all those crazy subtones and then going way up. And it's like, with this fat altissimo as an alto player, like, oh, absolutely. And I don't right. need, like, an extra key down there to do anything. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is a goofy anecdote, I, and I can't even remember who told me this story. Uh -huh. Somebody I interviewed on this show said to me that when he was a kid, he went, he met Sonny Stitt, uh -huh. and he went to uh, Sonny Stitt's hotel room with uh -huh. his the, this young person's horn, which was r really busted up horn, barely played. And he thought, man, if I could just have a good horn, I could sound like Sonny. And when he got to the hotel room, Sonny said, "Give me your horn, kid." And sounded just like Sonny Stitt on the mm -hmm. horn. And he said, at that moment, I realized it wasn't the instrument, it was me. And he said, that was the thing that sent me back into the practice room to really work on my sound. Not to say that you don't need a working instrument no. as well, no, but no. that there's something besides the piece of technology. I've heard that someone, I remember someone telling me that story about Jerry Berganzi, a tenor saxophonist in Boston. Same thing, how he brought Jerry this busted horn that he just couldn't get a good sound out of. And just Jerry blew it out of the water. And he's like, okay. Okay. <laughs> There's a, which I yeah I, I agree yeah, yeah you gotta go practice <laughs> that's important those are important experiences um, as we come to a close here my uh, my final question is always the same which is is there something you've you've read or seen or heard uh, that has inspired you either recently or ever that you'd like to share with other people well you saw me blowing I've been blowing up on Twitter I've <laughs> seen that my <laughs> gosh I feel like we ought to just list your t last 20 tweets and people no, already know I just, I'm getting really irritated on Twitter it's such an irritating platform and I but it's like it can be so useful and I I'm now I really want to use its utilitarian value um, for what can I learn what can people tell me that they're into I want to know um I was just, let's see, I was just talking about, uh, as far as jazz records go, J.D. Allen's Victory. The title track on there is amazing. It's gorgeous. The way he plays, I was listening to him play uh, some ballad on there, sounding just like the perfect extension of Dexter Gordon I've ever heard in this century. You know, it's like, right, but not sounding like Dexter Gordon. You right. know what I'm saying? Sounding like J.D. Allen. That was something... That, yeah, I'm very inspired by that. And then I was talking about pop records. I still, I'm really still inspired by a lot of pop records because a lot of my friends make pop music. And 
it's just really interesting the way the music they make gets people excited. Yeah. And I'm curious to know wh- where the link is for jazz music. I'm a big pop music fan, too, so give me a couple records. Uh, so uh, I've, I've been talking about Tune Yards. Oh, man. Huge fan of that lady. Oh, so crazy. Yeah, so I'm good. a huge fan. And then I was talking about uh, Buke and Gase. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. I mean, both of those records in some way, like you can hear the ethnic music influence. There's a lot of African music going on in both of those records. It's kind of interesting. And all those musicians talk about <clears throat> those influences, which I think is important because it, it'll it turn you on to some whole other things you weren't even thinking about. Yeah. Um, the Buke and Gase record I'm really digging right now because the entire record sounds like one composition. Like it just it just segues. It's just this long segue, and I can't wait to corner them and ask them why. <laughs> like it really messed with my head that record. Um, so and then I was just listening to Polar Bear, this uh, experimental jazz outfit from the UK. The drummer Seb Rochford that I've played with a couple times and hope to play with again. And every time I go to the UK, I'm hearing these crazy stories about their shows. How people like the audience sings along to their songs. I want to see that happen at my own. Sh- you know what I'm yeah. saying? What is going on? And I was listening to their record, and I could hear like, oh, okay, so there's like a pop influence there, but still, there are all these other things. Um, but yeah, so those records right now. Great. Yeah. Well, it has been so so awesome. much fun to talk to you. Great. Yeah, thank you very much, Matana Roberts Thanks is my guest. Out. Thanks for being on the show. Great. That's Montana Roberts. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock and presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. My thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. I forgot to thank them at the beginning. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session's logo. You can find the Respect Sextet online at RespectSextet.com, and you can find Dave Rabel online at Twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Please do become a member. If conversations like the one you just heard are important to you, then your membership is important to me and to this show. 
I need 100 members by the 300th show. I'm not quite halfway there as I record this intro, and that means I need you because on August 11th, when show number 300 airs, this show will either gloriously go into its new sponsored future or it will end, and that choice is up to you. In the meantime, please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.